Support for WABE comes from the Community Foundation for Greater Atlanta. You can go beyond giving to impact. Learn more at cfgreateratlanta.org. I'm Erlon Woods. I'm Nigel Poor. We're the hosts and creators of Ear Hustle from PRX's Radiotopia. Ear Hustle is a show about life inside prison, but it's not your typical prison podcast. In this next season, we've got stories about the objects people keep inside their prison cells. About residents in a women's prison who say they want to stay there. And the most beautiful prison garden. Erlon, I will never forget it. Ear Hustle. Stories about life on the inside told by those who live it. Find Ear Hustle wherever you get your podcasts. And Closer Look continues from WABE in Atlanta. I'm Rose Scott. Let's stop, revisit a moment in our nation. There is no constitutional issue here. The command of the Constitution is plain. There is no moral issue. It is wrong, deadly wrong, to deny any of your fellow Americans the right to vote in this country. That is then President Lyndon B. Johnson on March 16, 1965, addressing a joint session of Congress about passing the voting rights legislation. Now, President Johnson would sign the Voting Rights Act into law on August 6, 1965. Many thought this legislation similarly would outlaw decades of discriminatory voting practices, mostly coming from southern states post the Civil War. And if you're wondering what those practices included, well, poll taxes, basically charging a fee to vote, and literacy tests as a prerequisite to voting. There have been changes to the Voting Rights Act, including the Supreme Court striking down a key provision back in 2013. We'll get to that in a moment. But of course, there's a this is a major political year as midterm elections are taking place and as well as statewide contests. And yes, there are concerns. And yes, a lot has changed regarding federal voting rights and states have passed related measures in a new book. Longtime voting rights activist Gregory Moore talks about modern-day battles against voter suppression laws, and he ties those battles to the nation's history of grappling with voting rights. The book is titled Beyond the Voting Rights Act, The Untold Story of the Struggle to Reform America's Voter Registration Laws. Gregory Moore joins me now. He's on the road. Thank you so much for taking the time. I really appreciate it. No, thank you for having me. Let's begin here by going back to the 1965 Voting Rights Act. In terms of provisions, there have been some drastic changes, or as some is called, a gutting of the Civil Rights Act. From your viewpoint, Mr. Moore, is there much protection left in this federal legislation? Well, there is. Thank you for, thank you for having me. And there is a number of protections that are left. The Section 2 of the Voting Rights Act basically outlaws discrimination in voting. And this has been a longstanding uh, tool that the civil rights community has used to protect us in these times when uh, states or local jurisdictions have tried to enact legislation uh, that would dilute voting strength of people of color. Mm -hmm. What we lost in the Shelby decision was the ability for us to pre-clear those, well, for states or local jurisdictions to pre-clear those provisions before they became into law. And that's what's really been taken away. And that has led to this basic uh, level of voting 
discrimination that has been proliferating across the country in the last few years. And in that 2013 ruling that, you know, some, depending on when you ask, some would say, well, we no longer needed states like Georgia and I think Alabama to to go through this because times have changed and and there wasn't a need for it. And then others would say, well, no, exactly. There was a need for it. Now, after, of course, it was changed. And now we have all these issues with some states Uh, through your lens, the gutting, uh, as some put it, the gutting uh, of the this Voting Rights Act, particularly back to 2013, if you say there are still provisions left, then why are we seeing so many concerns about what states, including Georgia, are doing with new laws that have been passed? Well, one of the things that happened when they got rid of or when the Supreme Court ruled in the Shelby decision to uh, get rid of uh, or get rid of the Section 4 and Section 5, basically, it took away that tool of pre-clearing some of these provisions mm-hmm. before they became law. So as a result, uh, civil rights litigators have to go and litigate section by section, mm-hmm. case by case, which takes years in the courts, rather than stopping it at the gate before it happened. Several thousand laws have stopped, were stopped from being enacted in the law because of the full strength of the Voting Rights Act. But since 2013, we've seen state after state look no further than Georgia mm-hmm. has taken this on. Texas, Mississippi, North Carolina, it's just been a proliferation particularly in these last two years since the 2020 election. In your book, you take the reader through a timeline of voter reform movements and what you call, quote, historic advances that were achieved amidst fierce opposition in Washington and in state legislatures across the U.S. But it seems now that for voting rights activists, they feel like they are still up against fierce opposition. Maybe not necessarily Washington, but some might point to obviously the previous administration, but definitely fierce opposition as they see it in some state legislatures, including Georgia. Let me ask you this, Mr. Moore, what does reform look like then in terms of overall voting rights? Is it something that can be detailed in just one simple federal legislation? Or will we just have, again, more lawsuits depending on which side you're on of this? Well, we'll never get through all the lawsuits before people would have lost the right to vote over and over again. So mm-hmm. there are a couple of bills I'd like to point out. One is mm-hmm. the John Lewis Voting Rights Act, Voting Rights Amendment Act. That was a, a effort that we've been trying to get passed since 2014 mm-hmm. when the Supreme Court first made their decision. There's also been other bills like the Freedom to Vote Act, which is trying to tie the issues of the overall uh, dilution of black votes and, and, and the influence of money in politics. But even the Electoral Count Act, which is a very narrow, narrowly defined bill that would stop from happening in 2024 or 25, what happened in 2021 when we had the issue of the um, the miscalculation or the misunderstanding of the role that the Electoral College plays uh, in choosing the president. Mm-hmm. All those types of bills that are pending now in Congress are stalled because of the filibuster. But I do want to point one thing out, Rose. We had the same problem in the 1990s when we were trying to pass the National Voter Registration Act. Mm-hmm. That bill was filibustered over four times. And it was vetoed once by the former president, uh, George Herbert Walker Bush. But we overcame those filibusters. We overcame those those uh, opposition from the Republicans. In fact, Republicans were one of the leading sponsors of the 1965 Voting Rights Act. So we're calling on them to come to their senses, look at their own history, and realize that they were a central part of the voting rights uh, bills, both not just in 1965, but the reauthorizations in 1970, 75, 82, 92, and 2006 in the bill signed by President George W. Bush. All of these have been bipartisan efforts 
on the part of Congress to pass the Voting Rights Act and the National Voter Registration Act and the Help America Vote Act. And this is the only period we've had in the modern history where there's not been bipartisan support and there's been hyperpartisan politics that's driven this whole debate. Why do you think that is now? Is it a fair assessment to say this has also been fueled by since Donald Trump was president and then also the election deniers in terms of the results of 2020 or even absolutely. back for Go ahead. No, absolutely. I didn't want to cut you off. Absolutely. Okay. It's the polarization of the electorate. It's basically the sense that people have forgotten the basic core of our democracy. We survived all of these years because we were able to have elections in this country and the winner and the losers accept the results and move forward. This is the first time in our nation's history that we've had this concentrated effort of people to doubt, doubt or deny the election results. So whether it's the work that we've been doing around reforming the laws or even the, the courts and the battles in the courts, we are really in a protracted struggle to just get back to the starting point of our democracy. So we really need to have people come to their senses, get rid of the hyperpartisan politics and just put in place a system like we had before the Voting Rights Act was overturned that lets one person, one vote, and there'd be no barriers to voting. We've advocated for years for same-day voter registration, but even without that, the restoration of the Voting Rights Act will solve and resolve a lot of these issues if we can just get that bill passed out of Congress. While you all, folks like you, advocates who are, quote, waiting for folks to come to their senses, in the meantime, what are you seeing in terms of grassroots organizations? If it if it really is about, and I keep hearing this, it's got to take the will of lawmakers, and you and I both know that could take a long time. And oh, depend- yeah. <laughs> so while you all wait for that, what are you seeing on the ground? Are you optimistic that there can be some type of on collaboration terms, at least just educating people, making sure folks know what the laws are so they are not caught up or unfairly disenfranchised or intentionally disenfranchised when it comes to even registering to vote. And that that varies from state to state. That's right. But that's why we have this new initiative led by Martin Luther King III, the Drum Major Coalition. I just talked to him and his wife last week. (laughs) Well, good. I'm glad you did. And he has been really looking at this the right way, taking um, taking the efforts of all of our groups, including my own group, the Promise of Democracy, the Promise of Democracy Foundation, we're working to bring all of our groups together, to bring resources to the table, and to help do voter registration, voter education, so people understand the rules and the laws that do exist. And when there are new laws that have been written, we want to be able to explain that to them. But that leadership on the part of the King family. And on the part of the civil rights organizations and the work that's been done by Stacey Abrams over the years, all of that work really is collaborative and needs to continue in order for us to bring us to a, a level playing field for the election in 2022. So we have a few weeks left of voter registration. I urge everybody to get registered, renew your registration if you haven't. But at the same time, look to see how you can help bring more light and energy to this fight for the right to vote and particularly calling for the past of the John Lewis Voting Rights Act. You mentioned mentioned in the past how there was a bipartisan effort. Well, listen, folks listening say, well, look, we want everyone, regardless of their political party affiliation, afforded the right to vote, whether Democrats, Republicans, Libertarians, whatever, progressive, centrist, whatever you want to call yourself. So how do you then convince people that this is not a partisan effort because you want more Democrats to vote? And you want more people to vote for Democrats. How do you do that? 
Well, making it easier to vote for everybody makes it easier to vote for everybody. When we take off the barriers, when you get rid of things that make it harder for people of color to vote or low-income people to vote or young people to vote because they move often uh, or because they don't have a permanent address, these are the kinds of things that remove people from the voting list. But I admire the, just the role that Georgia has played in this whole struggle, whether it's the work that we've been doing around this uh, drum major coalition or the work that Dr. King has done, of course, uh, John Lewis, John, uh, Julian Bond with the NAACP, all of these historical organizations and institutions have really kept on the battlefield. And we are almost there. I think we've made more progress than people give us credit for. But if we can just take the hyper-partisan politics out of it, not use this issue as a way to turn out the vote, but use it as a way to expand the vote so that if you're a Republican or a Democrat, you don't want your vote to be not counted. You want your vote counted. And you don't want to be accused of having to you know, steal an election. Those things don't happen when the laws are standard, when there are no uh, basic uh, barriers to voting, and when people have a fair chance uh, to express their vote at the ballot box in early voting or on election day. And then every vote is counted. You mentioned Georgia, but of course with Georgia's new laws, look, even with drop boxes, with Georgia's new law, we're looking at hundreds, I think uh, over 325 some drop boxes that were previously available, no longer available throughout the state. That That's a big issue, particularly when you look at in Georgia where we have some very populous counties such as Gwinnett, DeKalb, Cobb and Fulton. And and advocates have said, you know, that is directly tied to you, to, to someone having their their vote suppressed because if you limit the number of those drop boxes and then perhaps right. folks can't get to the a drop box, you then are limiting and you haven't really given a explanation. You say, well, there's at least when I say you, I'm talking about, you know, our government here. Well, there's at least one drop box in every county. Well, for a county like Fulton or, or DeKalb, yeah. or, you know, you need more than just one. And there are more than one. But throughout the state, you're talking about 300 plus drop boxes that will no longer be available. That's absolutely right. My state of Ohio, for instance, you only get one drop box per county. So counties with 10,000 people get the same drop box as counties with over a million people. And so that's the disparity and the barriers I'm talking about. You've said it very well yourself. So we have to do more to show these kind of barriers that continue to exist and begin to put together remedies at the state level. But state legislators are very important roles, too. It's not just we have to elect a Congress that's mm -hmm. going to support voting rights, but we have to elect a state legislature that's going to support voting rights and a governor who's going to support voting rights and a secretary of state that's going to support voting rights. These are very crucial positions in this year. And there are other issues on the table, as you know, you know, the right to choose, the mm -hmm. education issues, the, the funding for education and the health disparities, the violence. All these things are going to be on the ballot in the fall. But we really need people to step up. And, you know, I, I left out one key person, even Jimmy Carter, from the very beginning of his presidency, uh, pushed for Election Day registration. So this is not a radical idea. Mm -hmm. It's something that's been out there for a long time. And the work that the Carter Center's done, the work that the Drum Major Coalition's doing, all this is moving us closer toward a democracy that's more fair and, and, and basically balanced. But we have to get out of the hyper-partisan politics mode if we're going to get this resolved in time 
for our next presidential election. And in your book, you talk about, particularly you also spent a lot of time talking about efforts as it relates to, especially when Bill Clinton was was president and leading up to his election. And you talk about the efforts and the strides that were made. And then, of course, as you just mentioned earlier, through your lens, the decline of the movement based on, like, for example, 2013. If, again, you're waiting for this bipartisan effort to come around until then. And I want you to be very specific. What can you all do? If you can't get the legislation at the federal level and you're having challenges with GOP led states, folks listening may say, well, we're just sort of in this still just kind of stagnant mode. What can you do? The best remedy we can uh, put outside of litigation and legislation is to have a massive turnout of voters at the polls who basically deny the room, deny the falsehoods that our elections are not fair. There's a lot of work that go in to get elections to come off Mm -hmm. properly. And that work goes on, but we have to get partisanship out of that process. And so if you want to volunteer to be a poll worker, we need your help there. But having the long lines go on forever and having people left out of the polling place is really not a good idea. We need to keep fighting to pass the legislation and turn out the vote in large numbers. I want to get your thoughts on this because we had a conversation with the Brennan Center not too long ago out of New York talking about these election deniers and efforts through a PAC that were seemingly coordinating a nationwide effort, mobilizing people to staff election offices, recruit poll watchers and poll workers, and as they see it, build teams of local citizens to challenge voter rolls, question postal workers, as they put it, be ever present in local election offices, and also just request documents. Seemingly, in other words, just trying to be disruptors before an election, before results are even... You know, Tally, what do you make of that? That that's also something that groups like yours are up against. Well, that's what I mean by the hyperpartisan politics coming into election administration. We have laws on the books to administer elections. Those are standard bipartisan laws. The reason we have to pass bipartisan legislation because it's implemented on a bipartisan basis. So we don't want to pass laws with just one party and then say both parties got to implement it because we went through that in the 1990s mm-hmm. when people... Republicans still fought the National Voter Registration Act, even years after it passed. It took us six years to pass it, and we spent three years fighting in court to get states to implement it. So we want to get states to implement these laws, but the way to do that is to get them passed on a bipartisan basis. I know I am sound like a broken record here, no. but, it, but, 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 but we don't want to put our election administrators in danger of people accusing them of somehow gumming up the system. We don't need these partisans coming into these elections, like you said, and making it very difficult for us uh, to get the votes counted. And so we don't need that work. We need to have laws and restrictions against that type of activity. Mr. Moore, as we wrap up, what concerns you as we head into this very important time in our nation again, midterm elections come November? My biggest concern is the apathy that people may have about uh, whether or not they can do anything about this, these problems. And basically the the fear that people have that the election is not going to be uh, undertaken fairly. We have to get that fear out of people, remind them who we are, remind them of our history, remind them of the work of Dr. King and the civil rights leaders of old. And the work that remains to be done is for us to take advantage of those laws and to move forward with protecting those laws and knowing that every vote does count. It doesn't matter who you are, 
your vote is the same as anybody else, whether you're a multi-billionaire or someone who lives on the street. You have the right to vote and you can continue to join this battle. I would urge you, if you want to hear more about this work, uh, promiseofdemocracy.org is my website. Mm -hmm. But there are several other efforts and read the book and you'll see a lot about our history that is saying that this is not new. This has been going on for decades. Mm -hmm. Speaking of which, Mr. Moore, you've done this for a long time. You've been in this space for a long time. How optimistic are you that we will get to a place in our lifetime in this nation where maybe you and I and other folks, we don't even have to have this conversation regardless of one's party affiliation. That We're not even having this conversation that everyone within the law <laughs> has a right to register and vote and without any barriers. Life would be so much better if we didn't have to have this fight every year. And I believe we're ready to have an election about the election and about the issues and not about the voting system. The voting system needs to be off the table in 2024. We need to all have standard laws. And I'm optimistic that if we come together now in 2022 and 23, we can avoid a disaster in 2024. But we have to take advantage of every opportunity. And I'm looking forward to saving our democracy in my lifetime and yours. It always comes back to democracy. The book is Beyond the Voting Rights Act, The Untold Story of the Struggle to Reform America's Voter Registration Laws. Gergi Moore is the author. Thank you so much for taking the time. I really appreciate it. Thank you so much for having me. I appreciate that. Thank you. Thank you. Support for WABE comes from the Community Foundation for Greater Atlanta. If you love Atlanta, you can invest in the big picture. Learn more at cfgreateratlanta.org. The field of mental health counseling is growing rapidly, and Richmond Graduate University can equip you with everything you need as a licensed professional counselor while integrating your faith into your clinical practice. Programs are offered in Atlanta, Chattanooga, and online. Apply today at richmont.edu. That's R-I-C-H-M-O-N-T dot E-D-U. And Closer Look continues from WABE in Atlanta. I'm Rose Scott. Think about this for a moment. How could our neighborhood libraries that we all love be part of climate change and other environmental-related projects? Well, let's find out. Because over in DeKalb County, there is a plan to transform what they call traditional landscaping around all of its 23 libraries. And it's an initiative that's going to be first of its kind in the nation. And joining me now with more is Jamie Rosenthal. He's the founder and CEO of Roots Down because they're a big part of this and he's been on the program before. Jamie, welcome. Thank you. Thanks for having me back. Jamie has a shirt that says Food, Earth, People. That's right. Says it all, right? That's right. <laughs> For our listeners who may not be familiar with Roots Down, tell them what you do, why you do it, and how long you've been doing it. Uh, well, I've been doing this for a long time. Um, I've been in this space for about 20 years. Mm -hmm. um, been a land steward and former farmer and um, advocate and educator for, for a long time. Um, yeah, Roots Down is focusing on the landscaping industry and changing over the landscaping industry from the traditional mow and blow into mm -hmm. a force for ecological change. Um, and environmental change. Um, there's a lot of money and wealth in the landscaping industry, and we want to really shift the paradigm over to better environmental stewardship. And you know, there's there's just a lot of money there, so we need to do better with our with our money. How does better? When you say better stewardship, how do you define that? And is that is is that something that can be easily identified and then executed? Yeah. So you know. 
in everyday landscapes. I mean, we we're out in in public all the time, and mm-hmm. we hear you know it's ubiquitous in all of our landscapes and all of our neighborhoods. We hear mowers and blowers going all um, the time, all the time, <laughs> and especially during the pandemic, I think a lot of people noticed those sounds going on, and I think that that has brought a lot of um, awareness to us using those budgets for. Um, for for bettering the landscaping industry, and that just means like less fossil fuels, less reliant on chemical mm-hmm. uh, dependencies on 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 spraying herbicides and pesticides, mm-hmm. and tending the earth the way the earth needs to be tended, so our soils can can grow wonderful things like fruit trees and pollinator habitat. And, and, and does like it that. also include in how we we water? You know, using more rain barrels. You know, oh my conserving gosh. all the yes. listen. I got an email one time from a listener that it was about five pages long. I'm exaggerating about why am I not talking about rain barrels? Right. And I said, look, I get it. I understand. But, you know, I don't need five pages. But it's important. All of that, you say, whether it's from the rain barrel to what kind of pesticides and sprays we use, all this is part of the landscaping industry. And we can bring some sustainable model to it. Oh, yeah, definitely. I mean, you know, we all walk by our landscapes again in our neighborhoods and see the sprinklers on after a big rain, you know? And yeah, that, I think just modeling modeling good behavior, modeling climate resiliency right here, I believe in our neighborhoods where we can see it, visually see it, will help us solve larger global climate solutions, you know? So, so let's talk about this partnership now with, you know, this is with DeKalb County, exactly. How did all this come about before we get into what you're all gonna be doing? Yeah, well, it's been a year since mm-hmm. I've been on your show. Yeah. And, um, you know, we started the Fruitful Communities Initiative. I remember. Um, we started working with Commissioner Ted Terry and want to thank him big time for all of the wonderful uh, partnership um, and all of DeKalb County. And we started the Fruitful Communities Initiative and we started working very closely with the library systems. And we started putting some gardens in. We started talking about, you know, climate uh, resiliency plans and, and changing over the landscapes to better, more productive landscapes. Mm-hmm. And, you know, out of this work that we have done, we started kind of, you know, the with just an idea. Um, we started working with his team and DeKalb County on policy. So we worked on this resolution to, as we were building landscapes, we worked on this really wonderful, uh, fruitful libraries resolution. And um, we built this resolution, which is the promise, and it's an ambitious plan for DeKalb County to change over 23 libraries into productive landscapes for their citizens. So it's kind of a Kind of a big deal. I'm pinching myself every day. Yeah, because uh, you're right. And I did my research. I just don't take your word for it because you put in a press release. But I do like you, Jamie. I couldn't <laughs> find another initiative that focused solely on libraries and, and, and landscaping as part of some type of environmental, you know, sustainability you know, initiative. So this is a first of its kind in the nation. So what does it look yeah. like? Someone listening may say, well, so what? I'm, I'm going to go to the DeKalb Library and it's just going to have gardens and what exactly will this entail? Well, it's going to take it's going to take a while. Um, planning doesn't happen. You know, this stuff doesn't happen overnight. Rome wasn't built in a day. Um, so we want to focus on the game plan is education and advocacy, and that's really what we are building. We've been building the scaffolding for a year. We built mm-hmm. what we call the Growers Program at okay. Piedmont at Piedmont Tech, which is going to be educating the landscapers just to do step one, which is less blowing, less mowing. Right. Okay. So you first you're starting with changing the mindset of folks who are me to doing the landscaping. Yes. Change the mindset said get them to adopt some new policies and practices okay i'm with you yeah we got to educate the workforce if we want to make change that's the first you know educational tool we built an advocacy uh wing of our organization called the green hive which is a leadership program for youth 18 to 24 and um, we built a lot of policy, uh, you know, recommendations around how they work with with local government to make change because they're 
that you know that group of people really anxious. Mm-hmm. So we've been building this backswell for a long time, and then this culminated into this fruitful libraries resolution, working with the library systems because they were willing, and you know the commissioners were all really excited about the possibilities in the library systems because every person in every walk of life comes to a library. Absolutely. If you're just joining us, I'm in conversation with Jamie Rosenthal. He's the founder and CEO of Roots Down, and we're talking about their partnership with the Cap County because they have a plan to transform the traditional landscaping around 23 these libraries in DeKalb County that are going to be also more environmentally friendly, so to speak. But also, this was interesting that stood out to me. It said the new landscaping will include edible, native, and Susanna Capaluto will love this because she's into bees, and pollinator-friendly plants. Yes, absolutely. I think in order to heal our planet and um, fix all the problems with modern day landscaping, we need resiliency and we need um, diversity. So the landscapes will really kind of focus on, on diverse you know, um, species, like whether it be you know, pears and plums, things that grow native, native here, um, leaning into things that could just be picked and harvested in a passive, in a passive way, along with pollinator-friendly plants. It'll look like a beautiful botanical garden. It's not going to look like a farm with row crops. It's going to look like a beautiful. Oh, why not have some corn and we you know. uh, for sure worked working some of that in the landscape because the library get some ear corn <laughs> and they have been. You know, some of the libraries we have planted um, in uh, Commissioner Marita Davis Johnson's district. Mm-hmm. Um, she was a pioneer of this, by the way. Yes. So we want to thank her. Five of her libraries have these gardens, and people are harvesting tomatoes and squash and zucchini and that blueberries. Is, that's cool. That, that, is, that is real cool. And then it goes into my next question, Jamie, because I know someone listening says, okay, are you all going to use, I guess, the results from this first project, the Fruitful Libraries, are using that as a metric to say, hey, we can take this even further, and this is the success, this is how we determine that it's working. Yes, absolutely. We, we didn't just test tiny. I think in DeKalb County, the second largest county in Georgia, we tested with, with them, and it worked really well, so we want to replicate this. So when you say it worked, what are you going by? Just people leaving a comment in the comment box saying, this is awesome, I would love the way it looks, or are you able, is there some type of, uh, of tangible metric that you can use? Was there a, re- a reduction in water usage? Or give us something that you can say, hey, this will work, because we already started the process. Well, really big win. Um, at the Clarkson Library, we converted the whole library over to a productive urban landscape. We took a lot of some of the stuff that was half dead, like the roses that were dying. And, you know, um, who let the roses die? I mean, it just happens. You know, some of these plant choices that we have are, are very limited. Who and let they, the roses they die? I know, I know. And um, well, bad, maybe, you know, like over years of, of, you know, improper management, some of those things just, you know, Fall, fall to the wayside but yeah this we're you know we're testing it with with the libraries and um we that library didn't have a mower or a blower for mm-hmm. many months sure so that's a pretty tangible wow see this is why when i i have this segment i just got an email from steve rain barrels are a joke please call them water tanks otherwise <laughs> good show See, yeah. see what I see what I have to deal with, Jamie. Or mosquito habitat. I I mean I kind I mean, of I like agree. Steve. Steve's a water guy. He, yeah. he emails me all the time. But like, really, Steve? Yeah, it's not just and Steve may be right. It's not just one thing. It's not one thing that can help you know the landscaping industry. But why is he calling rain barrels a joke? Well, I think it's I think it could. Have be, I opened up some? Have I opened up Pandora's box here? You might have opened up a can. Oh my! Do I need to do another segment on this? We could do we could do because plain segments. folks like me we we see rain barrels in people's and you ask them they go it's my rain barrel 
Now, here y'all come with this water tank. When I think of water tank, like I'm from St. Louis, mm-hmm. and there's this huge water tank off of, folks from St. Louis will know, off of Natural Bridge Road as you go into St. Louis County. That's It's huge. It's, right. That's a water tank to me. Nobody in the city of Atlanta has a water tank that size. So when I think water tank, I think that. Not Anyway, Steve, stop emailing me. <laughs> I'm also tired. Yeah, I get you. It was a long day yesterday. So, <laughs> but so yeah, it's a start in terms of how you all will be able to use use the model for the libraries, and then do you can you take it even further beyond libraries, Jamie? Yes, that's a really good question, Rose. And I think that we we want that to be the living example, the learning hub for how we change the parks departments, how we change mm-hmm. churches. Let's think about you know uh, property management, yeah. apartment complexes. I think that this is just a way for us to be able to make that change. Well, so, let's be really clear because we have landscapers that come here. Yes. Um, we could probably... We talked about this last time. I'm going to get me in trouble. Yes, yes. We talked about this last time and we could change... If we're going to change the industry, educating them, they could be... These landscapers can be put... And we should program. be a model. I mean, our landscaping should be the model of what we're covering, I guess, in a sense. Yeah, I'll hold you to that. This might be my last show, Jamie. Oh, no. <laughs> yeah. But after libraries, so you say apartment complexes or, or condo complexes or, yeah. or any other entity that has some, some landscaping that could benefit from this type of project. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, think, you know, just think about anything from big to small. I mean, we were talking to uh, Coca-Cola recently and their, their, you know, campus, like think of large campuses. I mean, we are partnered um, through our Greenhive work with um, Georgia State University, Mm -hmm. Emory and Agnes Scott. They all have environmental uh, initiatives. Well, and DeKalb, along with Agnes Scott, they've worked together. They have a, a, a very sustainable initiative that they started some years ago. So, what you're saying, what we're talking about, really does present itself as it takes a holistic approach, public and private partnerships, oh, yeah. nonprofits, for-profits, all coming together. Since you know we're all out in this space, we're all on this path of how do we preserve the earth for what we have left because apparently you know, we're all on, it's burning up mm-hmm. at a faster pace than it has been. So all of this is a holistic approach, what we're really talking about here. Yeah, I think it's a, it's a visual approach, a local, hyper-local approach where we could see the results happening in front of us. Global climate issues are really hard sometimes to grasp and understand. And this stuff we could see right here in our own neighborhoods happening. And it just makes us, you know, better stewards of, of, the, of the planet on a, on a whole. And if folks think that we're making this up, and I love this, this fact here, and this is according to the California Air Resources Board, that they identify that even one hour of leaf blowing could equal as much smog and air pollution as a car driving over a thousand miles from Atlanta to Montreal, Canada. Now, someone listening says, oh, come on, Jamie. Rose. Well, they're going to they're gonna want to pick apart those facts. Yeah. They're going to want to say, well, not my leaf blower, because my leaf blower <laughs> has a special filter on it. Right. You know, so we can pick apart those facts. But but yes, I think that the, a lot of the the um, data and evidence um, is there. It's there. It's that, you know, we are we can do better than four cycle engines. We can do better than burning up fossil fuels to to manicure our our lawns that don't really give us a whole lot back. And so what role are you all playing then are you, besides setting, you know, sort of the, the laying out the plan, starting with education? That's you all that will talk to the folks working in DeKalb County that work in the landscaping in that area. That's where you all come in. Absolutely. Our, our core of our business model um, and our mission is education and advocacy. Um, we really focus on, on those things because we'd rather teach people to fish than fish for them. 
Before I let you go, because I think your story, your personal story, your backstory is <laughs> is interesting, too. And I know I was teasing you a little bit, but it was all in fun. Because oh, yeah. You got into this. I mean, you were a fashion photographer, correct? In my in my past, I've been many things. But yes, a fashion photographer, um, a landscaper and a farmer. Um, and I don't want to age myself, but I've been a land steward for almost two decades. So. Yeah. So, yeah, I've come I've done many angles, but um you know, I've seen where I can make a difference in society and changing, I think, the landscaping industry and making it a force for change here in the metro Atlanta area will be um, will be huge for a huge win. Considering that the landscaping industry is a hundred and fifteen billion dollar industry. You read that stat. That's yeah. staggering. That's, I, I, I read now. Yeah, that's good. And there's nothing wrong with that. We're not saying that you shouldn't make money. You're saying what you all are saying is that you can still have revenue, but also be good stewards of, of the of the earth. Yeah, so we want to focus on thought leadership. We want to focus on advocacy work, and we built an app. We have an app. It's it's live. Of course you do. We have an app. So Roots Down app. app. Go <laughs> go and go and download that, please. Because you know we're trying to outreach. We're trying to do um, community building, and we're trying to tell people what we do. So you know, follow us on Instagram. See the journey with us, and if you want to set up a time for us to talk to your community about what we have done in DeKalb County on a whole. Um, Set that up with me. We'll, we'll ha- we're happy to talk to you. I have a listener that has a question, and, and she says, uh, I know it's a she says, Rose, ask him about what would be a good starter edible plant. Oh, my gosh. I mean. Yeah, well, you know, blueberries. I love blueberries. Blueberries. Well, you know, that's the thing. Like, we don't realize. I mean, we call ourselves the peach state, but blueberries are making more money for the state of Georgia than, than I had, peaches are. I've had a conversation with a blueberry farmer. It was it's actually one of my favorite conversations ever. And blueberries don't get enough love as they should, like with the peaches and the peanuts and everything else. But yeah. so blueberries, huh? Blueberry is a great plant. It's, I mean, it, it's beautiful. There's also a native variety that's more of a bush. Um, you know, um, I believe it's called a something rose, rose blush blueberry, and it's beautiful. Yeah. So blueberries are a great. Does it require start. a lot of water, sun? What, what do they need? No, here? just native soil. A lot of that clay soil that you put stuff in. Put put a blueberry in it. So you put some blueberries around here. Will you assess our? I would love to. I think we should go outside. I will hold you if to not it. Not today, but we'll go out. We'll, we'll grab our human resources person we'll, and our CEO Jennifer. We're going to walk the grounds here. You're going to tell us what we can do to be better awesome. so that our landscaping is, is you know, we want to be a part of the solution, not part of the problem. Yeah. Well, thank you so much. It was really, really wonderful. <laughs> and thank you, everybody who's listening, for, you know, making this possible. Um, appreciate it. Jamie, you're still in. I, I end the show. Not not you, Jamie. What are you doing? Oh, my gosh. You've been here twice, and already you're taking over. Jamie Rosenthal is <laughs> founder and CEO of Roots Down. Good program. Thank you so much for taking time. I really appreciate it. Thank you, Rose. And Closer Look continues from WABE in Atlanta. I'm Rose Scott. All right, unless you're driving or on one of those electric scooters, raise your hand if you're just a little bit sick and tired of all the campaign ads. Of course, it's a lot right. I know. It's a lot right now and will be for another month. But in other words, hang in there, everybody. So we'll deal with it. Meanwhile, a new general election poll, courtesy of the AJC, is out with a focus on Georgia. Now, depending on whom you ask and what political party they're supporting, it's good news, not so good news, or still a toss-up. So, time to dig into the numbers with our numbers guy, Atlanta-based political strategist Fred Hicks. But today, he's wearing his polling demographer hat, so to speak. Welcome, Fred. (laughs) Thank you, Rose. Glad to be on. So, I printed out all, I don't know, 20-some pages of, of the AJC 
2022 general election poll. All right. So first of all, just in general, your overall view of the poll and be fair in your analysis. Absolutely. You know, the one thing we always say is that polls are a snapshot of where things are at that particular moment. And so as we are about a month away from early voting, this gives you an idea of where things would be or how things would go if the electorate looks like those who were polled and if the election held, were held today. And so what I would say to that is that there's good news and bad news uh, for both Republicans and Democrats in this. Uh, the one thing I would say, of course, is that at any point in any poll, it's better to be ahead than behind. Sure. But being behind does, does not mean that, uh, that, that that is the final story. You know, we have a long way to go over the next uh, 40 plus days and, and one month until the election starts. So it's going to be interesting to see how, how, how all sides, all parties, uh, both parties play this. But there's a lot to like uh, if you're Republicans and there's, and there's some definitely some signs for hope. Um, if you're Democrats in the survey. Well, let's start, obviously, with the big one. I mean, of course, when you talk about uh, Warnock and, and Walker, um, any surprise there in what these polling numbers revealed there that Warnock, Warnock was ahead? Uh, so, you know, they're fairly consistent with a lot of the other polls, and that's one of the things you look for when you're benchmarking. Now, the interesting thing about this survey is if you look at the cross tabs and you scroll down and you look and see um, – who who participated in the survey, mm-hmm. you'll see that this is slightly more Republican than Democrat. So about 52% of the respondents were Republican. And so for Warnock and um, and Walker to be in a tie, a tie in this survey, what that means is that if the election looks like 2020 mm-hmm. or 20, you know, 2018, where it's basically 50-50, that in reality, Warnock would do a little bit better. So if, if, there's, if 52% of the electorate is, is Republican, then you know then then it's it's a toss-up looks like we might be going into a runoff but if the electorate looks like it like it has the last few cycles then this is actually really good news for for senator warnock it's not the kind of news that he'd want I mean, he'd want to be up five seven points but we know when everything normalizes and you get to the actual election uh then you, you can expect him based on this to be a little bit ahead so, um so of, in other words well, well hold on so in other words you're saying even even though 1.6 in a poll that seems to skew Republican, that's not necessarily good news for Warnock, just even being ahead a little bit? No, no, I mean, it's good news. I'm saying that you can expect to have a bigger margin mm-hmm. because the elect- if the, if this election, and we'll talk about this, what this comes down to, which is turnout, if this election looks like November 2020, or even looks like November 2018, then you can expect him to have um, a little bit better performance, probably another point or two. So you could see him having winning by two to three points over 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 Herschel Walker. Uh, one of the other things about this survey is that we know that statewide elections tend to be about 54, 55 percent uh, comprised of women voters. Mm-hmm. And this is more this is closer to 50, 50. And so when you talk about issues that are of, of import to women and, and looking at how Senator Warnock and, and Herschel Walker are performing with women, Again, when this if this election looks more like the last two elections, then that looks that that's really really promising for uh, for Senator Warnock. One of the other things is that when you look at this, you see that um, that Republicans like Brian Kemp way more than they like Herschel Walker, and that's the other thing. So with this survey being comprised of fifty two percent of the respondents being uh, Republican and and Warnock being ahead, uh, that that's that's excellent. Excellent news for Senator Warnock. 
and really troubling for uh, for Herschel Walker. Well, let's get to uh, Governor Brian Kemp and Stacey Abrams because he, with this poll results, I mean, he has a what some would call a a a very big, huge lead based on this. But applying that same theory that you just said about Warnock and Walker, does it apply to Kemp and Abrams, considering that Governor Kemp has this, according to this, this sizable lead? Yeah, so I don't think anyone, including the governor's camp, thinks that Stacey Abrams is going to be at 42% when it's all said and done. That's a snapshot Mm -hmm. with a survey that leans more conservative. I think that most of us believe that she will be at least at 48 or 49%. Um, And so, so again, assuming that Democrats do a great job of turning out their vote. So what they're looking for when you're the incumbent because you're looking, number one, to be over at or over 50%, so check that. Mm-hmm. And then number two, you're, you're looking to be, if I were the governor's team, I would really want to be at 52, at least 52%, because 52% of the respondents were Republicans. Now, he's doing a great job of holding Republican vote, but there's still room for growth there with growth uh, with him there. So while it's good news and for, for the governors, uh, it's not as good as you'd like it to be. And again, I think for, for Stacey Abrams and the Democrats, you know that you're going to do better. But this does what this does mean is that it's time to really ramp up your GOTV activities and to make sure that the election and the electorate. Well, well Fred, how much more can how much more can candidates? I don't care what side you're on. How much more can candidates ramp up the TV and, and radio ads? My goodness. Oh, I said, <laughs> I said <laughs> Come GOTV, on GOTV. Oh, okay. I said GOTV. Okay. Now, 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 TV is that that's exactly it, right? I, I think that. Enough with the TV, enough with the radio, uh, unless, of course, you're you know, donating to WABE. No, we don't, don't take political ads. We don't take uh, political, political ads. ads. <laughs> and I'm glad but, we don't. Um, we don't do that. No. Right. <laughs> Absolutely. Um, I'm glad we don't also. Uh, but at this point, it's time. enough with the TV and even enough with the mail. It's time to really invest in the ground game. I'm talking about phones. I'm talking about doors. I'm talking about direct voter contact. Um you know, we're already at the stage, I think, where people are tuning out, tuning out TV. And so you can take that money and put it into other activities. But, you've, um, you know, if you're Democrats, you've got to motivate your, your base to vote. And I think if you're Republicans, if you're Brian Kemp, which is different than Herschel Walker, uh, you, you know, you're, you're trying to hold steady and, um, and weather what, what's coming. But, again, you know, TV at this point, I think you're seeing um, – Diminishing marginal returns, mm-hmm. and now you have you have to shift your uh, you have to shift your stuff to GOTV. And I, I'm sorry, I'm using an acronym. GOTV stands for Get Out the Vote. Mm-hmm. So that's when you see people knocking your doors, calling your you know calling your phone, offering people rides to the polls and things like that. So that's that's when you're actually trying to make sure that people turn out and vote. Okay, speaking of folks who may or may turn out to vote, may not. Um, we look at the Libertarian candidates, and then you look mm-hmm. at the undecided. If you are, mm-hmm. what role, I'm going to start with the Libertarians, what role could that voter base play in here? You know, that's a great question, Rose. I'm glad you asked that. You know, in Georgia, we have a rule that if you don't get more than 50 plus, 50% plus one of the votes, then you go into a runoff. And that's what we saw in 2020 going into 2021. And so, again, when you look at the, the governor, I mentioned right now, you'd really want to be at least 52%. Mm-hmm. They are in danger of, of sliding into a runoff. And based on, and that used to be great news for Republicans up until 2020 and 2021. And so, again, for the governor, he's not just trying to be the top vote getter. He's trying to clear 
the field. And this poll had about a 3.3% mm-hmm. margin of error. So again, what that means is that uh, he could be 3.3 points above or 3.3 points below. So when you, if you're him, if, if, I'm, if I were on his team, my goal in this poll would have been to be at 53.3 because that means that we've, in, in effect, we've definitely cleared the 50% threshold. And so, uh, you know, libertarians tend to get somewhere between one and a, one to two percent. Mm-hmm. Anything over two percent pretty much guarantees a runoff. And so I think in this case, um, that's what the governor has to, he has to watch out for. I think uh, for the Democrats, I think that, you know, libertarians can be your friend to an extent. And uh, but you've got to get every single vote that you can. You got to get back to that forty eight point five two percent threshold at least um, by the beginning of October. And then that's that forty eight point five two is what Stacey Abrams received in twenty eighteen. So that you can then try to get over the hump. But you know, at this stage, it's really gonna t- it sounds basic to say it, mm-hmm. but it's really gonna come down to who turns out, who comes out to vote. Yeah. And so we look at these things about enthusiasm, right? Mm-hmm. So are you able to are you able to create enthusiasm? Are you able to create a sense of motivation? Uh, for Democrats, you know that Republicans are motivated. Georgia Republicans are, are not happy about losing the state. They're not happy about the Biden agenda. They're not happy about a lot of things that Democrats well, and have that's done. My so next que- that, that, that's my next question, Fred, because then for both of these major parties, do you want to focus on the now and the immediate in terms of how people are trying to live, their their current quality of life, which, of course, we know with the inflation and recession looming and all that. Or do you try to gamble still on the 2020 election was stolen, January 6th, all of that? Do you try to still engage your voters with some of the the past or you got to focus on, hey, how is this voter doing right now? And I've got to I've got to hit them where they're living. I got to focus on how are you doing right now? What's your quality of life? Yeah, you know, the Republicans have made a pretty clear decision to move beyond the 2020 election and focus on inflation and quality of life. Um, all the commercials seem to indicate that. All the mail seems to indicate that. You know, the, this poll came out yesterday, and the, probably the best news for Democrats that came out yesterday, obviously it was not the poll, but was that uh, the news that President Trump is looking at coming to Georgia after the Senate debate on October 14th. And so in support of uh, in support of Walker, because I, I doubt he's coming to right. support Brian Kemp. Right. Right. Or right. Walker, Walker and Burt Jones, Burt Jones. Uh, his, his endorsed candidate for lieutenant governor. But that's great news for Democrats. We talked about the last the last two times where it was on. I was on is that that's the one thing if you're Republicans, you don't want to have happen because it takes people off the fence. Listen, you know, again, whether whether people like it or not. Uh, Republican voters rejected Donald Trump in 2020. They rejected his his candidates in 2021 and in the Republican primary. Again, Rappensberger and Brian Kemp were not Donald Trump people. He did not Mm -hmm. want them, and they defeated his people. So having Donald Trump come uh, right at the start of early voting is really the worst thing that could happen to Republicans right now. It is one of the best things that can happen for Democrats to to swing those independents and those undecideds um, over to the Democratic column. Because it puts Trump right back center and on the ballot, metaphorically. Might we see the Republicans statewide here at least try to present a unified force, much like we might expect with the Democrats? I mean, just so you can get folks to vote down ballot, the same party. Is there a different strategy here? It seems like it would be for the Democrats as opposed to the Republicans. 
Yeah, I think there are two different strategies. You know, Republican voters are different than Democratic voters. Um, and so the, the number one question that both sides are going to have to try to figure out is, um, do you just want to try to pull out your, can you win with your base or do you need to try to pull some other people over? And that's going to dictate a lot of things. So again, if you're trying, if you're Governor Kemp and you're saying, okay, I need to hold the base and pull a few people over, then you don't really want to be with Burt Jones or Herschel Walker, two Trump endorsed people, because that pulls you in a different direction and, and it puts you, pulls you into a debate that you don't want to be in. Again, the 2020 election, extremism and things like that. Um, if you're the Democrats running as a slate, is very, 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 can be very effective based on the diversity. Again, you have uh, a white male and Charlie Bailey. You have mm-hmm. an, the first Asian American and B. Wynn. You have black women. You have a lot of diversity and a lot of, and some geographic diversity that such that I don't think, honestly, I don't think the Democrats are, are taking advantage of that when, you, when you're talking about uh, schools, you're talking about AG, uh, attorney general, and all of that. So it would be more beneficial to the Democrats to embrace the slate and to highlight the diversity and the background of the people up and down the ballot. But I think if you're Brian Kemp, you want to keep running your own race. You mm-hmm. don't really want to be attached to, to Herschel Walker or Burt Jones. So I got about a minute left. Let me get this in for you. Is there a voting block that is crucial for either party? Last time we talked about Stacey Abrams saying she needs the black male vote. Is there a key voter block here for the Democrats or the Republicans, they have to get a certain percentage in to win. Let's yeah, just say for a governor. Yeah, absolutely. So you see that Stacey Abrams is really struggling with the male vote in this poll. She's below 40 percent. Mm-hmm. So black men would be the easiest group for her. So absolutely, I still believe, actually, I believe even more so that black men are an, uh, a vital voting block for her. Um, and I think for when you look at the Senate race, given that both of them are, are black men, that being Walker and, and Warnock, that's the easiest group to go after in both cases. So uh, beyond that, I think that um, pro-choice women. So even if they are even if they are fiscally conservative, mm-hmm. I think that women, you know, 45 and under, particularly the 30 to 45 age range, uh, who tend to be presidential election only voters, I think that's a, the second most important block. Again, if you're talking about the heartbeat bill and reproductive health sure. and things of that nature, so I think those are the two groups: black men and then women. Uh, presidential year election only women who are 30 to 40 years of age, All 30 right. to 45 and so. All right, Atlanta-based political strategist and polling demographer Fred Hicks. As always, we appreciate the conversation. Just bear Thank with you. us. You, so you say bear with it one more month for all those ads, huh? At, at, le- <laughs> at least one more month. We go into a runoff, you know, that, hey, we got, that means we're going to see this instead of uh, parades for Thanksgiving. All right. Thanks a lot, Fred. I appreciate it. That's it for this edition of Closer Look. Our producers are LaShawn Hudson, Daniel Rezell, and Pat St. Clair. Our engineer for today was Daniel, but Kevin Rinker's our engineer because he rides a bike. A reminder to let us know your thoughts on today's program or any other. Send me an email, rose at wabe.org, as you all have been doing throughout the show. If you missed any of today's program, it's always online at wabe.org slash Closer Look. And, of course, Closer Look weeknights at 7 p.m. as well as our podcast. So subscribe wherever you like. Stay tuned to 90.1 WABE Atlanta. I'm Rose Scott. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. 
Local, state, national politics. WABE and NPR have the coverage you need. I'm Jim Burris, host of WABE's All Things Considered. Whether it's on the air at 90.1, streaming online, or connecting through our mobile app, WABE keeps you on top of election 2024 in what's sure to be a pivotal year in politics. And for candidates and ballot information, visit our election hub at wabe.org election 2024.